Hello, and welcome to World History with Professor Roll. I'm your host, Dr. Daryl Roll, former trash man, lumberjack, and IT consultant, but now professor of history, archaeology, and digital humanities at Calvin University. Our topic today is the Mediterranean world in the time of Justinian, who ruled from Constantinople between AD 527 to 565. This short lecture was prepared for students in my History 262 Early Medieval Worlds course at Calvin University during the spring 2020 COVID-19 lockdown. You may be watching this because you're a student in this course, because I or a colleague have assigned or recommended it for another course, or simply because you've stumbled upon the video or podcast and have an interest. Whatever the reason, I'm pleased to welcome you, and I hope that you find it interesting and worthwhile. So we're talking today about Justinian who is widely acknowledged as one of the most important and controversial of all late Roman and Byzantine emperors. Amongst his accomplishments are extensive territorial expansion and military success, an empire-wide monumental civil and religious construction drive that includes such world-famous structures as Constantinople's, Istanbul's, Hagia Sophia, the compilation of an extensive legal codex, and a deep new synthesis of Christianity and Greco-Roman culture. Hailing from humble beginnings, Justinian certainly made his mark as emperor, and along the way he became entangled in controversy, not least of which revolved around his unconventional wife, the Empress Theodora. Now there's a lot that we can talk about in regards to Justinian and his reign. Given current circumstances, I'm tempted to focus in on the AD 541-42 to Justinian plague. But we're all, I think, a little pandemic out at the moment. And I will be giving this more extensive treatment in a new course that I'm going to be running in the fall on disasters, plagues, and pandemics in the pre-modern world. For now, though, we're going to focus in on Justinian's military campaigns, which are perhaps the most extensive of anyone in this transitional period that we call late antiquity. So, who was Justinian? What do we know about his early life? And how did he come to be emperor? Well, our sources indicate that he was born around AD 482 in the ancient town of Teresium, which is located today in the northern part of the Republic of North Macedonia. While this origin within the rural Balkans is sometimes highlighted as part of Justinian's supposedly humble or unlikely background for a future emperor. I think it's worth pointing out that Constantine the Great was born 200 years earlier in Nice, Serbia, 
and the great Diocletian was born near Solon, Croatia, around 40 years before Constantine. Diocletian even retired as emperor to tend his vegetable garden in what has become the modern-day city of Split, Croatia. All three of these emperors came from at least partially humble backgrounds, born in the Balkans. Diocletian, for example, is known to have been born to low status, possibly as the son of a scribe, or as Eutropius noted around AD 360, Diocletian may have been a freedman and therefore a former slave. Now Constantine was the son of the short-lived emperor Constantius, but also of Helena, a woman of humble background, who some contemporary sources refer to as a concubine rather than a wife, and of whom Bishop Ambrose of Milan referred to as a stable maid or innkeeper in the late 4th century. Now Justinian appears to have come from a line of peasant farmers, but by a stroke of luck or the hand of God, depending on how you want to look or, or spin things, his uncle Justin had fled home during an earlier barbarian invasion and ended up taking refuge in the city of Constantinople as a teenager. And while there, Justin joined up with the newly formed imperial bodyguard known as the Excubitors. And he ended up rising up through the ranks to become commander of the guard. And it was during this time that Justinian was brought to Constantinople. He may or may not this early have been adopted by his uncle Justin, um, uh, but he was absolutely educated in close proximity to the imperial court. And he's said to have even served for a time himself as an excubitor. Now in AD 518, when the emperor Anastasius died childless, Justin ends up being proclaimed the new emperor by imperial officials. And he goes on to cement his position by assassinating potential political opponents, including those who had also been considered as possible successors to Anastasius. And although Justin had spent significant time around imperial rule through his former position as excubitor, he wasn't really prepared for statecraft, so he surrounded himself with many trusted advisors, including his nephew, Justin. In AD 521, Justinian is appointed consul. Now by this time, this is much more of an honorary title than an official position, but it is a clear reference to and a cultural continuation of that highest political role of Rome's historical republic, which by now has been dead for the past 550 years. In or around AD 525, Justinian gets married to a woman named Theodora, 
Now, this was bold and scandalous because Theodora was certainly not from the upper classes. Although Theodora is now considered a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church, contemporary and near-contemporary writers provided a mixed and often contradictory image of her and her life. For now, what's important is that Justinian married Theodora while serving as consul and advisor to his uncle, the Emperor Justin. Traditionally, they should not have been able to, to marry across their social classes, but recent legislation under Justin had made their marriage legal, although socially it remained very much scandalous. Two years later, in April 527, Justin appoints Justinian to be his associate emperor. And by August of that year, Justin dies and Justinian becomes sole ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire. But what are our sources? Well, archaeologically speaking, we have an enormous amount of material evidence relating to the period of Justinian's reign, and in particular for this extensive building projects that were taking place across the entire empire. Ruins and structures that remain in use today, such as the Hagia Sophia, which has a very long, complicated, and utterly fascinating history of changing use over time are crucial pieces of evidence. Mosaics of this period are also hugely important, offering really valuable visual and often textual evidence for all sorts of aspects of life, society, belief, and contemporary environment. In terms of documentary evidence though, the bread and butter, if you will, of history, our best sources are the Code of Justinian, also known as the Body of Civil Law, or the Corpus Juris Civilis, the Corpus Juris Civilis, and three separate works by the contemporary historian Procopius. Now, Procopius is an interesting character, and is sometimes he's sometimes referred to as the last major historian of the ancient Western world. Procopius was born in the city of Caesarea in Palestine, and he was a lawyer who directly served as a legal advisor to Belisarius, Justinian's chief military commander. And Procopius accompanied Belisarius on some of the military campaigns that he writes about. This means that he's a bit of an insider who can credibly be considered an eyewitness absolutely to the times he writes about, and even more importantly, to many of the people and actual events that he tells us about. Now, Procopius narrates Justinian's many military campaigns in an eight-book history called Wars, or The History of the Wars. This is going to be our primary source for most of this lecture. It was probably written between 545 to 553 during Procopius' service to Belisarius. And this work offers a rather positive perspective. But as Professor Paul Friedman has noted, 
you can see that once the Italian war starts to go badly, Procopius's opinion of Justinian and of the great general Belisarius tend to change from a kind of admiration and go, kill, get em spirit to uneasiness, to blaming, to finally a kind of finger pointing. Now, Procopius also wrote about Justinian and his reign in a book called Buildings, a panegyric or adulatory praise of Justinian and his extensive architectural projects, often providing very vivid details in its description of these buildings and their designs. Probably written between 550 to 557, it is widely thought that this book was written at Justinian's request. And the extreme positivity of the way Justinian and Theodora are portrayed in this book would certainly support that view. And it's possible that the emperor requested it after reading the first books of Procopius's earlier wars, which had probably been published separately before the final finger-pointing books eventually appeared. Now, in addition to these two official histories of Justinian's reign, Procopius is also credited with a third major work, the secret history or anecdota, which offers a very different view of Justinian and especially of the Empress Theodora. Probably written between 550 to 562, this book claims to reveal the reality of life in the imperial court, detailing alleged sexual activities of the Empress Theodora, the weak determination of the emperor, and the power that women held in the imperial court, so scandalous. The secret history is absolutely a condemnation of Justinian and nearly everything about him and Theodora. There is a claim here that the things presented within this text are more accurate than those presented in the more official histories, and that Procopius could not reveal these truths for fear of imperial retribution. Now, while many historians used to reject the secret history as an authentic work by Procopius, it is now widely accepted based on extensive linguistic and grammatical analysis. It probably was written by the same author as Wars and Buildings. And from a historical perspective, though, it leaves us with a puzzle to work out the truth amongst Procopius's various and often contradictory statements between these three works about Justinian, Theodora, and their time ruling Byzantium. So now, let's turn to some of the accomplishments of Justinian's reign. We're going to start with those military campaigns. From the very beginning, indeed from even before he was appointed associate emperor, Justinian was involved in a series of wars and military campaigns on nearly every edge of the empire. The earliest of these is what is known as the Iberian War with the Neo-Persian Sassanid Empire. Although the word Iberia might be confusing because modern-day Spain and Portugal um, form what is called the Iberian Peninsula, 
this war was focused um, on who would control the ancient kingdom of Iberia in what is today the modern country of Georgia in the Caucasus region. Now the Sassanids, sometimes called the Sasanians or the Sasanian Empire, they were the dominant non-Western force in the Middle Eastern world, taking over from the Parthians in AD 224 and dominating Persia, Mesopotamia, and much of the Near East, all the way to the rise of Islam in the first half of the seventh century. Like the Parthians before them, the Sassanids represented the single strongest threat to the Roman Empire. And this threat was inherited by the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire as Rome's territory split and the Western Empire fell in the fifth century AD. This Iberian War with the Sassanids, this lasted from AD 526 to 532, after which a treaty, a truce was agreed um, in September 532. And a treaty was signed. This treaty was called the Eternal or Perpetual Peace, and it ushered in a new era of friendly relations. Both sides agreed to return captured territories, and the Romans made a one-time payment of about 11,000 pounds of gold. Sadly, both sides were overambitious with their use of that word eternal or perpetual, as the Sassanids eventually invaded Roman or Byzantine territory only eight years later, and war between Justinian's empire and the Sassanids would continue then virtually unbroken on several fronts until AD 562, near the end of Justinian's reign. Now, in addition to war with the Sassanids in the east, Justinian was eager to reclaim lost Roman glory in the west. Perhaps believing that the so-called eternal peace agreed with the Sassanids would actually last eternally, Justinian turned his attention to the reconquest of the Western Roman Empire, starting in AD 533, beginning first with those agriculturally productive territories of North Africa. Now, North Africa was not only economically attractive, but it had also been the location of Rome's most important early conquest during the Middle Republican period, when Rome got its first serious taste of what it meant to be an empire, conquering, permanently controlling, and exploiting vast and far-flung territories for the benefit of the capital back at Rome. Now, that most prominent city of North Africa was Carthage, which had been amongst the earliest of lost territories when the Western Roman Empire began to fall to those so-called barbarian invasions in the early 5th century. Carthage and the rest of North Africa had been taken over by a Germanic tribe known as the Vandals, who seemed to have taken a sort of in-your-face rejection of Rome and its established socio-political order. While many of the emerging kingdoms of Western Europe 
themselves ruled by Germanic barbarian groups. While these were largely careful to position themselves as at least partially continuations of Roman rule. The Frankish king Clovis, for example, had been recognized by the Byzantine emperor Anastasius and had accepted the title of consul. The Vandals of North Africa, on the other hand, continued to use their native language, which is technically foreign to North Africa. They refused to pay homage to Roman and or Byzantine leaders, and they persisted in their adherence to Arianism, which had been continuously rejected as heretical by successive church councils. And when Hilderic assumed the Vandal throne in AD 523, though, he began to shift the Vandal kingdom's position toward Rome. And by Rome here, I am, of course, referring to the surviving Roman Empire situated at Constantinople. Now, Hilderic stopped the persecution of Christians who followed Byzantium's approved orthodoxy as agreed at the AD 451 Council of Chalcedon. And some would argue that Hilderic even took this a step further and actually converted to Chalcedonian Christianity, which would put him much more in line with what rulers like Clovis were doing in Western Europe. Now, Hilderic also replaced his own image with that of the Byzantine emperor on new Vandal coins, overturning 100 years of Vandal practice. And perhaps due to these pro-Roman or pro-Byzantine policies, Hilderic suffered opposition from the Vandal nobles, and he was overthrown and imprisoned in AD 530 by his own cousin, Gelimer. Now, Justinian sent several diplomatic embassies to Gelimer, demanding Hilderic's release and the return of the kingdom to Hilderic. But Gelimer repeatedly rejected these demands and any supposed authority that Justinian might hold over the Vandals and their kingdom in North Africa. So, once the supposedly eternal peace had been agreed with the Sassanids, Justinian had a perfect pretext to invade North Africa. His military commander, Belisarius, sailed to Tunisia with a fleet of 92 warships known as Dromones or Dromans and 500 transports with a total of 15,000 Byzantine troops, plus additional barbarian units who were in the service of Byzantium. Now, the Vandals were surprised and they were quickly defeated. Although Gelimer had murdered his cousin Hilderic upon word of the Byzantine invasion, he ultimately surrendered and was paraded through Constantinople in a triumph that was commemorating the reconquest of Africa. Almost a century, after almost a century of Vandal rule, North Africa was finally returned to nominally Roman hands as the result of this campaign, which took less than a year. And in the end, it looked like Justinian was on his way to restoring Rome to its former glory. With North Africa, 
once again subordinate to Roman or Byzantine rule under Justinian. The next stop was Italy, the historic home and birthplace of Rome. While the history of the Roman Empire is very much the history of Rome's transformation from an actual city on the banks of the river Tiber to an idea that could invest its authority in any place, even far removed from that original namesake. The city of Rome did remain at least symbolically important. Yes, it had not even been the capital of the empire that bore its name for the past 200 years. But the fact that Rome itself was occupied by the barbarian Ostrogoths was a lingering reminder that in some real ways, the empire had failed. While the Italian aristocracy had remained important figures in the Gothic regime, and Gothic Italy's rulers had nominally recognized a wider th authority vested in Constantinople. The Ostrogoths had initiated their own independent policies, independent of the surviving Eastern Roman Empire. And tensions reached a height in AD 524, when a leading Italian politician with family links to previous late Roman emperors was executed on charges of conspiracy to overthrow the Ostrogothic king, Theodoric the Great. While imprisoned before his ex execution, and over a period of about a year, this politician, known to the world as Boethius, composed a philosophical treatise entitled Consolation of Philosophy, one of the most influential works of the Middle Ages and still frequently assigned reading in university philosophy courses. This was not his only scholarly production, but it is certainly his most enduring legacy. Although Justinian was too late to save Boethius, we have to remember here that Justinian, he wasn't even emperor when Boethius was executed. Um, Justinian did send Belisarius to, to, to the to Sicily, and then to the main Italian peninsula. Success here was much more difficult than in Africa, and Justinian's eastern forces faced a series of victories and defeats between AD 535 to 540. The Byzantine forces entered Rome with no opposition in December of AD 536, after successfully capturing the nearby city of Naples following a three-week-long siege. And after replacing their king following the unexpected defeats, the Ostrogoths returned to Rome in March of 537. They laid siege to the city for 12 months and nine days, but the siege was finally abandoned. They didn't win. They abandoned the siege when Justinian had sent reinforcements from Constantinople, who captured several towns in the Goths' rear, and ended up cutting off their seaborne supply routes. Diplomatic work was also underway for the next few years in the struggle between Justinian's forces from, from Constantinople and the Ostrogoths. So the king of the Ostrogoths, for example, he sent envoys 
to the east to the Sassanid court, requesting that they reopen their hostilities against the Byzantines. While the Byzantines themselves tried to convince the Franks to join in in battle against the Goths. And when the Goths saw the Franks arriving, they believed that the Franks were going to fight on their side. But sadly, they were mistaken. And in May of AD 540, Belisarius ends up capturing the Ostrogoth capital of Ravenna. That had been a former late Roman uh, capital as well for the Western Empire. And then things get really interesting here. The Goths offer to make Justinian's general Belisarius the new emperor of the Western Roman Empire, to resurrect that empire. And it is presumably during a negotiation about this offer that Belisarius enters Ravenna. Belisarius ends up not accepting this role. He returns to Constantinople, and he refuses the honor of a triumph for his great victories in Italy. Now, as the eternal peace um, with the Sassanids had turned out to not be so eternal, and Byzantium now has a new war to deal with on the Eastern Front, an agreement is reached with the Ostrogoths, which partitions Italy, Byzantium or Rome, and, and we must remember the Byzantines continue to call themselves Rome and Romans. The Byzantines would maintain all Italian lands south of the River Po, while the Ostrogoths would maintain their lands to the river's north. This peace too, though, wouldn't last. With the Romans now seriously occupied by the massive eastern threat of the Sassanids, and in the context of the massive Justinian plague that devastated and depopulated Justinian's empire in AD 541 to 542, the new Ostrogothic king, Totila, marched south, recapturing cities from the Romans, laying siege to Rome itself again, and victoriously entering the city in December of 546. Now, four months later, Belisarius, who had once again returned to Italy during yet another truce with the Sassanids, had recaptured the city of Rome. In 549, Totila recaptured it again for the Ostrogoths. Poor Rome! And Byzantine, though, um, forces, they saw a final period of success in their Italian reconquest between the years AD 550 to 555, as they sent a large force um, of, of Byzantine soldiers accompanied by foreign allies, including groups of Germanic Lombards. And in 552, Totila was killed in battle, and any serious Gothic threat in Italy was routed in, um, by uh, late 553. Other Germanic barbarian groups, though, including groups of Franks and Alemanni, and Byzantine forces continued fighting to maintain Justinian's control over Italy. Now, between his con reconquests of North Africa and Italy, Justinian succeeded in reclaiming extensive and valuable, and here with valuable, I mean both economically and symbolically, ideologically, 
valuable territories that had been lost over the preceding centuries. And this recapture of the old herbs or, or the city of Rome itself justified Constantinople's continued claim to represent Rome, that idea that had grown from an ever-expanding military, political, and cultural power that originated with that city. Sadly, though, Justinian's conquests did not last long. Some have called these victories Pyrrhic victories, referencing the ancient story of King Pyrrhus of Epirus, his 3rd century BC successes against Rome. And in Pyrrhus's case, he had defeated the Romans, but in the process he suffered catastrophic and unrecoverable casualties. In effect, he had won the battle, but lost the war, and it's possible to view Justinian's reconquests in this way, achieving some initial success, but at such a cost that these victories were unsustainable and may have forever weakened the Byzantine state. Now, shortly after Justinian's death, most of Italy was given up to the Lombards, a new Germanic group that you might be reminded had actually been part of Justinian's final campaigns to wrest control from the Ostrogoths. And under post-Justinian agreements, the Byzantines would maintain control of Rome, Naples, and Ravenna, but this left the Lombards, mostly pagan or Aryan, as a serious regional threat in control of the vast majority of Italy. And the conquests in North Africa also were not to last. But these were for totally unexpected reasons, and that is the rapid rise and expansion of the Islamic world throughout the 7th century. And we're going to look at this in a future lecture. So that's all we have time for today. It's been a bit of a wild ride, and there's still so much left unexplored about Justinian, Theodora, and their time at the helm of the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire. For better or worse, though, their influence was enormous. That rascal Procopius has also only been summarily talked about here, and he's absolutely worthy of much more serious consideration in deep analysis in his own right. I encourage you to continue reading and learning more about both this power couple, and this deeply problematic, but thoroughly riveting ancient historian. Until next time, be safe. Thanks. <laughs>